Welcome to the 236th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have an awesome show for you today. We are going to be talking about last week's Amazon news in depth. We've got some new earbuds from Microsoft we're excited about. Emerson looks like they're doing a strategic restructuring of sorts. Rockwell Automation has acquired a company. And... Smart Rent, which is a smart apartment company, has gotten a lot of money. We're going to talk about all of that, plus some news bits. And we're also going to hear from our sponsor, Control 4. And our guest this week is Simon Crosby, the CTO of Swim.ai. And we're going to be talking about business models for machine learning at the edge. And you are not going to want to miss this if you are trying to build a business model for machine learning at the edge. And you know what? Who isn't doing that these days? So, all of this and more. But first, a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Hive MQ. As many of you know, MQTT has become the de facto standard for IoT. Hive MQ helps companies connect IoT devices to the cloud using MQTT. Companies such as Audi, BMW, Acer, and SiriusXM are all using Hive MQ to build their IoT solutions. They rely on HiveMQ to provide an MQTT platform that is reliable and can scale to meet the demands of millions of connected devices. You can find out more about HiveMQ at HiveMQ.com or check out their open source project on GitHub. Oh man, it seems so long ago, Kevin. I Remember I used to have my protocol song? Did I ever sing that for people? You know, you might have sang it for me once, but I, I think I blocked that from my memory. Got it. Fair. All right. Before we get started with the Amazon news, we have a little bit of business to cover. Many of you know this because you'll follow me on Twitter and you subscribe to the newsletter. And for that, we thank you. But we are doing a survey of all of our listeners and our readers. So if you haven't taken it yet, you should, one, to give us your opinion. We love opinions, right? And two, if you leave an email address, you'll be entered to win a Hughes starter kit. So, and we're not using the emails. They get flushed after this. There's no weird marketing thing. The only email you'll get is if you win, you'll get an email saying, hey, you won. Send me your address. I so, assume I'm not eligible. You are not eligible. Yeah, I don't have you Hughes. You don't like so you because they have a hub. Don't, yeah. e don't even, Kevin. <laughs> All right. The other piece of business we have is a correction. So in last week's episode, around the 27-minute mark, I was talking about LoRaWAN and Laura chips, And I said the wrong thing. I said that Senate makes the Laura chips. It's actually Semtech that makes the Laura chips, and Senate is a LoRaWAN network operator. So was a little confused. You guys, I'm so sorry. One or two little letters makes all the difference in a company name. Exactly. Semtech makes chips. Okay. All of that out of the way. Let's talk about Amazon. I know you guys may be sick of this because last week's episode was all about the pre-Amazon stuff that I had Daniel Rausch on talking about the actual event. But Kevin and I have yet to talk about it. And we think you might care what we think. I don't know. I hope. Okay. So... Real talk, they launched 80 pieces of news, which is way too much to cover. So we're just going to cover the exciting bits from our perspective. Mm -hmm. Easy peasy stuff, multilingual support. I was really excited about this because in my household, my daughter speaks Spanish. And now she can speak Spanish to Madam A and get 
a Spanish response back and I could speak in English and get an English response back. They mm -hmm. did this for the US is Spanish. In Canada, it's going to be French and English. And in India, it's going to be Hindi and English. So I thought this was pretty awesome. I would love to see this. Like, I feel like there are probably lots of households in the US where Hindi and English might do well. But for now, it's only in those geographic areas. And this news actually surprised me. Now, I'm not a, I don't use the Echo that much. We tend to have everything on the Google ecosystem in the house currently. And remember, Amazon came out with the Echo well before anybody else had some smart speakers, right? So everybody else has been trying to play catch up. But Google has actually had multi-language support for many languages. And I don't think just in the US for quite a bit. So this, it surprised me that Amazon didn't already do this. Well, I'm excited that it's happening. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. It's, it's not the most exciting thing. I don't know why I led with that. But, you know, I was like, let's get the small stuff out of the way. The other sure. thing that Amazon hunches, which is, I don't know if you guys remember, they launched it last year. And it was basically like, you would say, Amazon, turn out the lights at night. And Madam A would say, hey, your door isn't locked. So she would give you a proactive kind of thing mm -hmm. based on normally your door is locked at this time when you turn out your lights. Okay. That's something I would like to see Google do. Yes. And I bet they do it really well too. But now hunches are getting more proactive. So what's going to happen is Amazon knows the state of some of these devices and it's doing basically it's an anomaly detection algorithm. So what happens is, and it sounds kind of like this, but it's, it's basically like, Hey, these lights are off and they're normally on. And also if you're constantly setting something up, like I found myself in this particular house, setting my hue lights to 80% at night, a warm 80%. And mm -hmm. Amazon hunches with a more proactive element could be like, hey, do you just want to create an evening routine for this? And I'd be like, bing, yes. Yeah, I mean, that that would make sense. It, it almost, I don't think we have this on our show notes because it's a small thing, but it kind of fits in with Amazon's like uh, frustration-free setup. And I forget what they called the feature for... Um, you know, just general device setup. But wouldn't that be nice to integrate it? Making things nice. Yes. And that's something I have seen this in a couple of devices in my history. So, you know me, actually, the software platform suggests routines for people. And I think that's a wonderful way to get people into the smart home because mm -hmm. setting up routines is just a giant pain. It's in the a life. drag. So, the other thing that hunches will do, it will estimate when you're running out of things. My Understanding on this is a bit hazy. I did ask about it and I was told that, well, I wasn't told anything great. So it sounds like the proactive hunches, like you might be running out of toilet paper. Those are based on when you order things. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't order your toilet paper from Amazon, I'm not sure that this is going to work for you, but how great of Amazon to be like, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> If you buy everything from us, we'll make your life that much more convenient. And this is this is what we've talked about for a long time. So it makes sense. Okay, so those were some of the kind of like, ah, I thought worthwhile little new features that you're going to get here. Let's talk about devices. They launched, I think about a dozen, maybe. Yeah, we're just going to say about a dozen. There, there wasn't anything as exciting as like and as random as the clock from last year, which is really just <laughs> right. a showcase for the Amazon Connect kit that they they put out there that makes it that much easier to put things in devices. Before we talk about all the other devices, I should say that particular product is amazing, you guys. 
There are now 85,000 physical devices that have Madam A embedded in it. Thanks in part to this product. When they launched it last year, there were 4,000 devices. Just ponder that's, that. That's staggering. How did, yeah. how did, hmm, hmm, I'm curious how that happened. Well, I mean, they put out that, it's a board. You just pop yeah. that board in your product and voila. Right. And some of these devices are not things that you and I would be like, like they have a, they have a Christmas tree. I mean. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, no. So they have that twerking bear. We'll just mention the twerking bear because everyone's very excited about Mine it. Mine should be here this week. Really? You ordered one? Heck no. Oh, I was like, OMG, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Okay. So back to devices that are official Amazon devices. They launched a couple that we're excited about. On the practical side, they launched something called the Flex. And this is a $25, it looks like a bridge. It's a plug-in device. You plug this guy in, it's got a speaker and a microphone. It sounds not great, but... It allows you to put an echo literally everywhere in your house. Yeah. I mean, anywhere you have an outlet, you can now have an echo with the microphone uh, with a mute button, if you'd like, as well. Um, it has a small speaker in it. They made a big deal that it has um, the A2DP support for like, you know, higher end audio streaming. So they have this USB port at the bottom and you can plug devices in. Maybe it's if you plug a, a nicer speaker into it. <laughs> if you can, if you have a nicer speaker to plug into your speaker, you can do that. Uh, you could also charge your phone with that USB A port, which is which is handy. And they say that port will support optional accessories sold separately. And I don't know what they mean by that. They but. are going to support things like they launched two at the event. Um, they were both fourteen ninety nine, so fifteen dollars. One mm-hmm. was a nightlight, and one was a motion sensor. Mm. So if you plug in the motion sensor, then you now have. Ready? I've been asking for this forever. Sensors associated with your Amazon Echo ecosystem, mm. which is important because up until now, you know, if you wanted to have sensors in your house with Amazon, you really had to have like a Smart Things or a Wink or Open Hab or some some other sensor based kind of system. Yeah, uh, short of the the Echo Hub, which does have Zigbee. I believe it does have Zigbee. There, there hadn't been too many products that support it, but you're right. 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 So the Flex does not have the two radios in the Flex are Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And yes. I got excited about Bluetooth because this is the perfect device for in-room presence detection using Bluetooth. Amazon, to be clear, is not doing this today, but they could. Well, maybe they could, and I say maybe because they specify the Wi-Fi protocols and channels, they don't say which version of Bluetooth this is. And as we know, because we reported this back in early this year, it's Bluetooth 5.0 or 5.1. I think it's 5.1. Yeah, that will bring centimeter level presence detection and object tracking and so on. So if this supports Bluetooth 5.1, then maybe... I'm making my straight face. I'm like, I, I know. I, I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. And I'm all about presence in the home. So I'm right there with you. But I'll, I'll be optimistic and say yes. Why would you put old Bluetooth in this? Anyway. Okay. Price. So we we got to move along here. So, okay. <laughs> Flex. Very exciting. I know you're not an Echo person. Is that something you would buy, Kevin? I don't think I would only because everything here is mostly Google Home. However, there's no doubt in my mind, if I was all in on Amazon's ecosystem, I would have these in the house, yes. 
Like I would just stick them everywhere. It's cheaper stick than that. Stick them dye. everywhere. Yeah. Okay. They also launched an oven. And we're only talking about this because I am such a kitchen fanatic. And <laughs> <laughs> they did something really worth noting in this oven. So the oven has Madame A. And you can say things like, hey, bake me a potato. And you stick the potato in the oven and it has the recipes. If this sounds familiar to the, <laughs> I think it's now $800 because of tariffs, the $799 June oven, it's because it is, except what Amazon has done here, June put the intelligence in the device and had to spend big on the camera and the NVIDIA Tesla chip that's in there doing the image recognition. Mm -hmm. It's not a cheap piece of silicon. No. Amazon said, you know what? The device itself doesn't need the intelligence. We have all these recipes and whatnot in the cloud or available to us through the digital assistant. And what we're seeing here is Amazon developed the digital assistant as a platform, much like your phone OS as a platform, much like Facebook as a platform. So what we're seeing is last year's theme was totally about getting devices on the network, right? Getting smart home devices, getting anything that you wanted to pull in more Madam A data onto the network and making it super easy and getting more devices, period. This year, we're really seeing the advancement of Madam A as their digital assistant as a full-on platform. Yeah, and, and that's why I think we saw so many products. I mean, granted, they did a lot of products last year, but I think as each year continues now, I don't know how they're going to fit all these product announcements in their yearly update, quite, quite honestly. Honestly, I want them to stop to like, <laughs> do two events. Come on, y'all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's interesting to me, aside from everything you just said about all the intelligence in the cloud, you and I both own the June oven, as mentioned, uh, paid a lot more for reasons that you had also just mentioned. This is $250. It's a convection oven, microwave, air fryer, it, you know, multiple ways to cook. It's not as big as the June. I mean, this says they, you can fit like a five pound turkey in. I think we can do like a 12 pound turkey. But if you're not cooking big amounts of food for $250, this is pretty amazing. And one thing I am very intrigued by is that they have worked with Whole Foods, 365, Marie Calendars, and Gardein. And you can just scan UPC codes from products with those brands, foods from those brands, in the Madam A app, and the oven will have the recipe kind of like how June has the recipes for us. But the problem is with the June, you only get the recipes that June gives you. Here, you've got a wide variety of things you can scan. And yes, and they actually did this with their microwave. They did a microwave with GE. Well, they did their microwave last year, and then they did a microwave with GE with similar capabilities. And it is doing very well. It's crazy to me. And awesome. And sad. Will you be getting one? These are these are released on November 14th for $250. Oh, I don't know. You guys tell me. If you think I should get one, I'll get one. I mean, you have the June. That's the only reason I ask. I should also mention, and I didn't notice this at first, every time I saw pictures of it, I always saw an Echo Dot next to it. That's because it comes with an Echo Dot for the microphone speakers. Yes, this is totally just connected. And again, we see this. This is the digital platform. Now, yeah. imagine though, and this is where, you know, that voice interoperability thing comes to play, right? That they launched last week. Imagine if all of your devices are just connected, they don't need the microphone and speaker. Again, that's expensive. You just are going to control them by talking to this assistant platform. Right. It's crazy and scary. Okay. Now 
let's talk about weird products. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they launched two products that they call their day one editions. And that's basically like, we're just flinging stuff out there in the world. <laughs> it's basically a beta or an alpha, right? Yeah. <laughs> and these are invitation only. One is called Frames and the other is Loop. Frames is a pair of eyeglasses and they can have a prescription or they can just be eyeglasses and Madam A is built into them. And they are very cool. They're very lightweight. They're 31 grams. So they weigh actually a little less than my current really super cool glasses. Are they very cool though? They're the hipster type look that I would wear, but the arms on these thing, at least in photos, you were there, you saw it. They look thick. They are thicker. Now, granted, my current cool glasses are made of like pressed together vinyl. So they're both heavy and thicker than normal glasses. So I'm like, yeah, these work. But it's pretty cool. So the idea of having Madame A accessible all day long with these glasses on my face is really compelling. Like, this is why I wanted the Amazon Echo Auto which was a terrible product. It's because I'm constantly like, when I'm in the car, I'm like, oh, I have a question. Oh, I want to know. <laughs> uh, so I like this idea, especially when we start thinking about things like adding hunches. And they showed off something about being in the, I think that Loop was the other product in the grocery store. But saying something like, hey, I need to get this at the grocery store and having the, the frames tell me where to go, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, dang. Yeah, I see these as a much less expensive, no camera, which was a mistake, version of Google Glass in a sense, because it's audio only. You can get the information that you want. It's very easy to use. This makes sense. Yes. And to be clear, there is no heads up display associated with this at all, you guys. It's right. just in your ear. They're $179.99. And I think they're going to go for $250 if Amazon decides to produce them. Right. And these work with your phone. You have to have a connected Bluetooth phone, I presume. There's yes. no... Yeah. These are these are phone, which is a shame because I'm going to tell you, my Madam A app is not awesome. Mm -hmm. It's very slow and laggy. I don't know if other people have this problem, but... It, it's, it's slaggy. It's, it's slaggy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm curious how that would affect the experience. That's a good question. These are Bluetooth 5.0, by the way. They do specify uh, what the Bluetooth is in here. This means if I put them down somewhere, I won't be able to find them. The the battery life is interesting. Like you could use these to hear music for up to three hours. I don't think I would do that. So what they say is intermittent usage of a single day, a single charge gives you like 40 Madam A interactions, 45 minutes of music. 20 minutes of phone calls, because you could use these as a Bluetooth headset, and 90 incoming no no notifications over a 14-hour period. So there's a lot more than Madam A on here, but if you just use Madam A, I, you, they should easily last two days on a charge, I would think. And I would think, so here's my getup for the next, like, in, in five years. I'm going to walk out of the house. I'm going to have my earbuds, right? And those are for listening to music. I can shut out the whole world and mm -hmm. move along. I'll have my connected glasses and that'll be for just constant when I need it. And then I'll have my phone and I don't know what else I'm going to have, but that seems like a lot. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, maybe like my wallet or my purse will have some sort of trackability. So when I leave it behind, 
mm-hmm. it'll beep at me in my in my earframes. Probably. You're always going to have the phone with you because I still don't think you'll have these services directly connected to the cloud on their own due to battery life and antenna size, etc. So you'll always have the phone. That could be obviously your wallet. That could be your connection for all these devices. But mm-hmm. will you have a connected ring? Amazon I also will launched the loop, not. which is a connected <laughs> ring where you can talk into the ring and get Madam A. I think it's silly. Thank you. Okay. I thought maybe it was just me. Uh, I, I mean, technically, I think it's interesting, but it's not a product I would buy. A Bluetooth connected ring that has a small speaker, I presume a microphone, because I've, I see pictures of somebody like holding their hand up to their ear to hear it and talk to, I guess you could take a call on it as well. You can. It's it's a very oh. Dick Tracy experience, except instead mm-hmm. of the watch, you're talking to your talk to the hand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I see what they're going for. You know, Some people don't wear watches, don't want to, but a lot of people do wear rings. So, okay, go the jewelry route. You've had a number of smart rings. I get it. But I just... I don't know. Maybe I'll feel differently after the product arrives. Again, it's one of those one uh, day one products, so we don't have it yet. And how much is the Loop? So the Loop is $129.99 if you get it through the day one program. It's an invitation-only price. After the introductory period, Amazon says the price will be $179.99. Okay. All right. We're going to blow through the next two items because we still have more stuff to talk about. Ah! Okay. Kevin, there was a big thing that disappointed you. What was it? It was the fact that the new Eero products are using Eero's True Mesh, and Eero now has partners such as Linksys, TP-Link, and Asus to also use Eero's Mesh technology, not use the standard Easy Mesh, which would allow you to mix and match access points. I'm kind of bummed about. It. I think I just think it's bad for consumers. Yeah. So basically, we've got two competing Wi-Fi mesh standards. Yeah. Okay. Other things. Oh, I have to mention it because it was so popular. You can buy Samuel L. Jackson's voice to replace your Echo for 99 cents. Does the dirty edition cost more? No, you can get it in explicit and in clean. Okay. Um, and I mean, it, if you're going to get it, you got to get explicit. I'm sorry. Well, yeah. I mean, but there might be parents out there who don't want, you know, Madam A to give them the MF weather. <laughs> I can't I can't do it because we're we're a non-explicit podcast. So. Madam A, what's the weather? Put your head out the window, MF. No. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that was be reading bad. about, you know, with the connected oven, Samuel L. Jackson could be like, take the steaks out of the MF oven. And I'm like, oh, yeah. No. Okay. We're no more of that. Okay. No the final thing we're going to talk about is the most exciting thing for me as a wireless nerd Amazon announced a new wireless protocol. Ah! Okay. It's called Sidewalk and it is a basically, it is a low data rate, long distance, low power network. So that's like an LP win. It's going to compete with things like Sigfox. It actually, last week's show, we talked about combining LoRa and Wi-Fi. That's kind of what Amazon, they didn't do a combination, but they built this new protocol to to bridge the same gap that that suggestion was trying to bridge which is they found when they were building ring products, the Wi-Fi didn't extend to the curb for like the lights and the lights needed to talk to each other and all of this stuff. So they were like, let's build something. They're using 900 megahertz. Mm -hmm. So that's the base radio and spectrum they're using. Then they've built a secure protocol that is only available right now for Amazon. They do say that next year they want to provide an SDK and open it up. 
I don't know how, if, if that's going to happen or not. But this to me is Amazon building basically a giant mesh network. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in fact, they have some products that already use it. Uh, the pet collar clip that it's called Fetch. So if your pet goes outside of a perimeter that you set up on Ring, Fetch will let you know. And the, the neat thing is, I mean, once your pet moves beyond your standard Wi-Fi network, you still can know, I think it's for up to 500 meters. 500 meters. Yeah. And possibly. So what they did is this is this thing is only available in the LA Basin area, which is what they have covered. They covered the entire LA Basin with 700 testers. So Amazon testers that are that have ring products with this radio in it. We're going to see this radio come out in lots of other products. So imagine basically Amazon's building out a wireless network. And yeah, they're doing with unlicensed it, spectrum. <laughs> yeah, with unlicensed spectrum by jamming this radio into products that you and I might buy. It's pretty yeah. cool. And I'll tell you what, you said we'll see what happens if if and when the SDK comes out. If it's if this takes off, I wonder what this does to the SIG boxes and others in the space. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting because a manufacturer, if you're making a product, you suddenly have a decision to make. Are you going to put this radio? And 900 megahertz radio is not something that, you know, normal people put in their products for the smartphone. Right. But now you've got to decide, do I put this radio in here and work with this Hope. protocol? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. That is all the Amazon stuff. Let's do really fast stuff for everything else. So, boom, here we go. Iotas, which is a smart apartment company, they just raised $8.5 million. They're going to launch an IoT as a service for enterprises um, and expand in our international markets using this. So Iotas is a company that has built out a bunch of smart apartment buildings. We've talked to Say Pike. She's been a guest on the show in the past. They basically do everything for the multifamily apartment owner. What's interesting is they raised $8.5 million, but also this week, SmartRent, which is a new company in this space, raised $32 million. And part of that money was from the Amazon Madam A fund. The interesting thing about IOTIS is they started out years before SmartRent and kind of out of an, a need and an understanding of the space. SmartRent came in, the investors that helped create SmartRent are venture funds associated with big multifamily dwelling unit companies. So big, big companies that own apartments, which means we're going to see apartments have smart rent because these companies want to make money on their investment. <laughs> <laughs> smart rent is also worth noting because last year, or maybe it was earlier this year, a hacker was informed that her apartment was going to be transitioning to smart rent and she found that she could hack their locks. So smart rent has fixed that. And we'll, we'll see how this works. What we're going to see though, is these companies get money is increasing concerns about privacy, security, and some really interesting legal discussions around, Hey, can my landlord convert my apartment after the fact? Yee, it should be fun. Not good. Okay, that's it on the smart apartment news. In the industrial space, we have Rockwell Automation has acquired a company called Mestech. This is notable mostly because Mestech is an Indian company that does integration for 
industrial automation projects. This is all part of a shift where people trying to do industrial IoT realize that it's hard. And the companies that are providing the hardware and software associated with this, they realize that they really need to do the consulting as well. And that's that's what's behind this deal. Also, in industrial news, Emerson, I was just at their event last week, they announced that they are conducting a comprehensive review of the company's operational, capital allocation, and portfolio initiatives to enhance shareholder value. What this means is Emerson has an activist shareholder who is pushing the company to adapt. Usually it is to maybe go into new markets, maybe it's to shut down increased costs, and Emerson's basically capitulating here. They have done several restructuring efforts in the past, so I'm curious to see what happens here. We care about them because they have a big industrial automation business in the process manufacturing world, and yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. Other small bits of news. Microsoft had an event today. Kevin, you paid attention. So Microsoft came out with a bunch of Surface laptops today, but more importantly to us is the new Surface branded earbuds. These will be $249 when they arrive this holiday season. They're wireless up to 24 hours on a charge with a charging case. You can listen to music on these, of course, but also these are integrated with Office. So you can dictate right into Microsoft Office products by speaking to these earbuds. And also, which was really cool, then you can have natural language processing uh, from Azure in real time when you're showing PowerPoint slides. Whatever you say will actually be captioned underneath the slides. And I just think that is really incredible. I do too. I'm very curious what the chip is that's powering that. Let us know. They have not said yet. It's yeah, it's not available yet. But you know, I'm such a nerd. I'm like, oh, okay. And finally, we have just a little thing. See, we spent so much time on Madame A. Poor Google got the short end of the stick this week. But Kevin, you found something. I did. If you want to make Google Duo voice calls up until now on the home devices, you needed a a screened device, uh, the regular Google Home and Google Home Mini without the screen. You couldn't do Duo voice calls. Now you can. So go make calls. Go call your friends on Duo where no one else is. Uh, I use it. I use it. I use it too. I, I forced all my friends. To, well, not all my friends. I forced my family <laughs> to do it. Okay. It's a virus. <laughs> And that's about it for this week's news, or all the news we can cover in this time period. Let's go to our voicemail on the IoT Podcast Hotline, which this month is brought to you by Afero. With the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world, Afero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market and 10x higher activation rates. Learn more at Afero. .io. Okay, so because it's a new month, we have a new winner for September of the Schlage Lock. That winner is Jason. You will be hearing from us and we will give you a text and ask for your address and congratulations to you, Jason. Yay! Yay, confetti! All right, this month we'll be giving away a wise camera and sense kit because... What the heck? Why not? Why is not? Oh, by the way, I don't know if you guys saw this, but tariffs 
are having an effect on the smart home market. Uh, we talked about that briefly with June raised their prices, and Wise actually sent out an email saying that they were trying not to raise their prices, but tariffs are adding about 15% to the cost of their goods. So Ouch. getting it for free, woo, it's a good thing. So if you want to be entered to win, give us a call at 512-623-7424 and just leave your question for us. And now let's go to this week's question from Brent. Hi, this is Brent from Utah. I have a teenage son, and we've done a few Arduino projects, but just pretty basic ones. And I was wondering if there was some better or more extravagant uh, thing that you guys are aware of that really will get my son interested in electronics and and really what uh, what you can make with you know with the Arduino or Raspberry Pi or something similar to that. So what ideas do you have? Oh, Brent, this is a great question. A really mm-hmm. good one, because Kevin knows all about it, and I have the same aspirations you do. So we can be hopeful together. Yeah, I could actually speak about this topic for two hours, but I won't. Don't worry. Because I'm currently using Arduinos right now in a comp sci class where we're learning how to manipulate individual bits and bytes at the chip level. It's really cool stuff. Now, I don't know, Brent, what projects you guys have done with your Arduinos, you can do some amazing things, but you're also very limited because the processing power is very low by comparison to other products. You have a limited amount of RAM. I mean, in some of these products, you have like literally 8K of space to create your programs to make the Arduino do something. It's great for attaching sensors and lights and motors and all, but you need a bunch of these things to actually get something really cool done. So what I'm going to say is consider getting a low-cost Raspberry Pi, which is going to give you a ton more processing power, more memory, more storage. Granted, it may be a little bit more challenging to set up because literally you're going to have to install Linux on this as opposed to using the very simple Arduino IDE, which uses C and C++ language. But you and your son will learn a lot and you can do so much more. We we built our IoT voicemail on a Pi. So I will tell you that I put OpenHab and I also tried HomeBridge. Actually, mm. I did OpenHab on a Pine 64, which is a different computing board, like a Pi. Similar though. Similar. Very similar. And then I did on a Pi, I did HomeBridge. And I am not, I can't even find terminal on my computer, right? I'm not (laughs) expert at any of this. So the tutorials were really, they were very strong for Pi. And I would say don't do a Pine 64, do a Pi because the tutorials are much broader. If you're not already familiar with it, I would um, take a look on GitHub, go to github.com, do some Google searches for Raspberry Pi projects, which you could then replicate because all the code for those is typically stored up in GitHub and you would have access to those. And or it might give you some ideas uh, for your own projects. Yes. And if that's a little intimidating at first, I'm going to recommend going to SparkFun which is a fantastic site full of kits. And if you search Arduino, you're going to come up with a bunch of Arduino inventors kits, hacker kits, and they they are projects that you can walk through. And then they even have, if if you shop with your your child, you can find purpose-built stuff like, oh, Mm -hmm. let's build a weather station or let's build a clock that lights up. I don't know, that last one I made up. But (laughs) <laughs> you just you can look through that and pick those out and they'll walk you through step by step. So there's two ways you can right. do it. You can buy a board and load some 
code onto it and then work with it, or you can buy a kit and they'll just walk you through each step. And SparkFun is a great place to find those. I would also throw Adafruit in the mix because they sell a lot of these components, not just the boards, but all the add-ons. They're called called hats for a Raspberry Pi, for example. And shields for an Arduino. Right. In one project, we added a 900 megahertz, which obviously we talked about that earlier in the show. We added a 900 megahertz radio to a Pi to communicate with a diabetes blood sugar monitor and got real-time glucose levels uh, and then sent that up to Google Cloud. There's a ton you can do with either of these platforms, but uh, sites like SparkFun and Adafruit show you all the components that will help you imagine what you want to do for your project and what you need. Yes. So go forth and hack. All right, you guys, if you would like to enter yourself to win and leave a question that we might answer on the IoT Podcast Hotline, give us a call 512-623-7424. And now... Stay tuned for a message from our sponsor and our guest, Simon Crosby of Swim.ai, who is going to talk about the business models associated with taking 60 terabytes of information and turning it into actionable intelligence. What would you pay for that? It's surprisingly less than you might think. All right. And now on to our sponsor. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break on this week's Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Control 4, makers of the Smart Home OS. And I have Brad Hinsey here from Control 4. So, Brad, let's kick it off with what sets Control 4 apart from other home automation companies. One of the things that Control 4 offers is a large ecosystem that gives you choice to bring in your favorite products whether it's your favorite thermostat, your favorite voice control system, or your favorite doorbell, Control 4 has the broadest selection for you to be able to integrate into a system that's designed to be infrastructure inside of your home. That's great, because I have a ton of devices that I want to bring into this system. But what is the benefit of having a Control 4 Pro come in and install the system for me? We all love gadgets. We all love technology. But sometimes when we're home and we're relaxing, we just want to relax and not actually do the work. A pro will help take that burden off of our shoulders so that we can just enjoy the technology, enjoy our home. But they can also help ensure that you're up to date and secure and that you're protecting you and your family. I'm excited about this, but what popular devices do you support? Many of the popular devices, Google Assistant, Amazon Echo devices, Sonos, Philips Hue, Sony, Samsung, LG, and thousands more. So you can bring the family favorites in and integrate it into your Control 4 home. Okay. I would love to have a pro, but I'm not sure I can afford something like that. What do you have to say about the affordability of having this sort of system? A system from Control 4 is actually quite affordable. If you would just naturally consider using a pro for things like landscaping or for painting or for electrical projects, then you're likely the type of person that can also afford a Control 4 system. It's really easy to get started for about $1,000 and then go up and a really cool systems at about $5,000. So it's really quite affordable. Man, I really want to know what that really cool system looks like. So where would a homeowner go to find a Control 4 Smart Home Pro in their area? In your area, you probably have a Control 4 certified showroom. That's the best place to go meet a pro and get hands-on with the technology. You can also learn more about it on our website at control4.com. Hey, 
Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Simon Crosby. Simon is the CTO of Swim.ai and a longtime friend. Hi, Simon. How are you? Hello, Stacey. It's good to speak to you. I am super excited to talk to you because we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, machine learning at the edge, combined with ah, Mm -hmm. business models. Before we get into that, why don't you just start off by telling us what Swim.ai is? Swim develops a product called Data Fabric, which allows users to quickly learn from streaming data. And so the challenge here is that in the operational world where users are tasked with you know, measurable outputs and so on, you want to learn things from data without them knowing how to program, without them knowing how to set up a data flow pipeline, without them having to store stuff. And so what Swim does is learn on the fly and deliver insights to users with almost no effort at all. Okay. And where does this live in the world? So is this a cloud-based service? Is this something that's on a device? How does this get deployed? Well, you've hit problem number one. So problem number one is what is the infrastructure needed to deal with streaming data? And Swim solves that problem by effectively allowing, well, smearing compute between the edge, the physical edge, and the cloud, the way you smear peanut butter on your toast in the mornings, allowing you to deploy software wherever you want, and then learning and analyzing appropriately wherever the appropriate resources are. So we don't really care if you're computing on a piece of damp string at the physical edge, there will be enough resources someplace and we will find them. Okay, you have introduced many things, smeared compute, damp string that's computing. So if I get this, basically what it is, is the software itself will sit on edge devices and in the cloud, and it learns where to find the resources it needs to do the streaming analytics. I guess, can I optimize it for where I want it to go based on cost or latency? Yes, you can. But what it does is it introspects to find out what resources are available at every compute node that is provisioned on, whether that's a physicalized device or something in your data center or the fog or maybe the cloud, to understand what's available, memory, CPU, bandwidth, and maybe devices like GPUs and so on. And then it dynamically moves tasks around within that fabric to ensure that it's possible to continuously learn and the real-time results from the data. Awesome. All right. So what does this look like in practice? I believe when we spoke probably a couple of years ago when the company had launched, we talked about a streetlight example. Can you share that with us? Sure. I think you're thinking of traffic. The product is deployed in numerous cities in the U.S. where we do two minutes ahead prediction of traffic flow for every intersection in a city, given raw data from the traffic intersection itself and all of its sensors. The idea here is to reduce data at the edge, at the physical edge, as close as possible as we can to the physical edge, and then to learn on the effectively the state of the intersection and its neighbors in real time using an unsupervised learning model, which continually experiments effectively to learn 
and then to predict continually in real time, so within 100 milliseconds of real time, to be able to predict what's going to happen two minutes ahead. And so just here's some fun facts for you. The city of Las Vegas produces about 60 terabytes per day of information from its traffic infrastructure. And so this is just too vast to even contemplate getting to the cloud or or anywhere else. You have to safely reduce it at the edge and get to some minimized data format that you can then process. And so the whole goal here is to reduce data as quickly as possible into something stateful. So think stateful lambdas like AWS Lambda, but stateful. And then from that to undertake this unsupervised learning and prediction process. Okay. Is that 60 terabytes from all of their intersections or is that from all of their traffic data? It's 60 terabytes from all of their intersections and all of their inroad loops. So you're getting events from every car going over every loop. But remember that most of the traffic infrastructure in cities is 30 odd years old. And so huge amount of that data is just horrendous noise, like a light repeating the fact that it's red 10 times a second or voltage swings on relays as lights change at an intersection. So it's just horrendous stuff and it's not stuff you would ever want to store. Got it. So I've got this kind of lots of useless data. I've got some useful data. I'm processing it at the edge. What is the end result? Like what gets actually sent up to the cloud or what is usable of that 60 terabytes? What SWIM does is this. We find things in the data. So a light, a loop, a pedestrian push button, whatever it happened to be. And for each thing, we create a concurrent object which represents that. And that thing concurrently processes the raw data from its own real-world source and statefully represents it in some way that's meaningful to the problem at hand. So you go from voltages to red, yellow, and green. And so you get massive reduction in terms of the volume of data, but more importantly, you move to this world which is all about the state of the system you're trying to model. And so we build this model on the fly from the data and then let things link to other things. So relationships such as containment or proximity would naturally emerge from what we can observe in the data. And then this notion of linking allows things to share updates. So whenever a light changes, anything that's linked to it can see that state change in real time. And that naturally allows for the sharing appropriately of information on a local or regional basis. And so I sometimes think of SWIM as being like LinkedIn for things. Things update each other. And so then from the data, we build this model, which is essentially this graph of things which are linked to each other, and then allow modelers, people who care about results, to attach trace to these logic objects, to these digital twins of real-world things, to compute on the fly. So, for example, you could learn and predict, or you could find the average wait time at all three-legged intersections in a city. That kind of thing. The key thing here is to separate the timescale of building this model, which is things linking to things, from the timescale in which you want to inject queries or analysis or learning or whatever. And we do that 
And so learn and predict is a trait which you can attach to all intersections and then they will continuously learn and predict and stream their predictions. That makes sense. Let's talk about how one makes money from something like this, because we're hearing a lot about machine learning at the edge. It's so hot right now. And I'm curious about the business models. Like we see a lot of companies who do it on a transaction basis, some that are doing software as a service. What have you guys found so far in trying to find the right model for your efforts to provide this? I'll start with two big fails, and then I'll give you some hope. How about that? On the fail side, going back to traffic, each digital tournament intersection streams its predictions two minutes ahead to an API, which you present in Azure. By the way, the digital twins of the intersections run in Azure because there are GPU attached instances there, which they can efficiently use. So they're predicting away. And then these insights are bought by folks like Uber and Lyft and Waymo and whoever else who wants to better use the city infrastructure. Okay, so good question is, what's the value of a prediction per intersection per month? What do you think is a good value of the prediction? Remember, it's 60 terabytes of today. Right. And I'm going to have, as a driver, I'm going to be going through multiple intersections, so it can't be too much. My trips only cost, you know, depending, like, right. I don't know what per mile. So I don't know. Right. So you you know how much an Uber ride costs, right? So I'll short circuit this. It's about 25 cents per intersection per month. Did you guys try charging more? And they were like, nope. It's early days for the market, but nonetheless, that number is wildly out of kilter with the volume of data. Yes. So lesson number one is the value of the insight may not be proportional to the volume of the data. Yep. Got it. Filtering through 60 terabytes of data per day for 25 cents per intersection. And you guys have to pay for the streaming. You have to pay for compute. Okay, that feels like expensive to provide and do. Right. The heartening side of this story is that the amount of compute that you need to do this massive data reduction at the edge, and indeed some of the key operations required for learning, is tiny. We haven't done this for Las Vegas, but Palo Alto, California is four terabytes today, and solving the modeling problem in AWS with Lambda is about $5,000 a month. But with NVIDIA Jetson, which is a $200 device, I'm done for all time. So the key point here is that many of these models are quite small. They're compact, and they can be extremely efficiently executed at the physical edge at low cost. So that's a point of hope that indeed with appropriate structures in place, you know, GPUs, TPUs from Google and so on, we will see the cost points for many of these optimization functions drop. And so it will be affordable to do these crazy things, which would currently take servers and vast amounts of bandwidth. So you'll be able to do them for pennies and charge 25 pennies and still make a profit. <laughs> but we're not there yet. Well, we aren't there yet in the sense that there isn't broad deployment of devices with these kind of capabilities in them yet. And I see that coming. So that's quite exciting. There is a, a complete fiction going about in the industry. That is that I'm going to collect tons of data in the cloud, build a model with an expensive data scientist. So I'm paying half a million dollars a year to 
and then deploy this model to the edge. That's just so much baloney. Nobody can afford to hire that person in the first place. And, you know, having somebody to build a model of every city in the USA and then push it to the edge, yeah, it's not going to happen, okay? So that's baloney. What's going to happen is things will grow smarter by watching themselves and their environment. That does seem way more scalable. Good. So AI at the edge will be one in which things become better what they do by observing. And that's a very interesting area of study, which is how to adapt the algorithms, which we would find currently in Spark and so on, which assume these disk structures. I have all the data. Let me go learn over my data. Instead, to change them, transform them so that we can use every new sample from the real world as yet another training example and an opportunity to predict, given what we know. Okay, so we should break this down a little bit for people who may not be familiar with the nitty-gritty of machine learning at the edge. So what you're talking about is essentially training models in real time at the edge as opposed to now when I, I will train a model in the cloud and then I'll send it back to the edge. It'll run, we'll gather data, it's testing against the model, and that's what happens today. It's cool and fun, but it's not what you're talking about for what's coming. Right. In fact, I'm talking about something even more than that, which is build a model on the fly. So build a model of the environment given the data. So for all the things, right? So build a model of all the things and then let the things observe and predict. Okay. And this is true learning. This isn't something like pattern matching, which we currently have. It's absolutely true learning. In the traffic work which we use, we use a fully connected three-layer DNN. By the way, there are some very cool things about this. For example, this. The environment around a traffic light is small enough that a compact DNN, you know, with maybe a thousand or two thousand inputs, can learn and predict. Okay? And these compact DNNs can run very efficiently in small hardware at low power. So it all speaks to the fact that it is possible, or it will be possible, to learn on compact models at the edge, and that you don't have to have these monster things and figure out how to deploy them to the edge and run machine learning lifecycle management and all that stuff, because that's just not going to happen. And for everybody who's going, what, DNN? That is a deep neural network, correct? Right. And how is that different from a normal neural network? It's a neural network in which there are one or two hidden layers of inference where the relationship between the inputs and the outputs is completely unknown and variable at the time. And so going forward and thinking about business models, we've talked about the influx of TPUs and, and the Jetson-type devices at the edge. We've talked about unsupervised learning at the edge, so you don't have to pay a data scientist crazy amounts of money to build something for you. And so those are the things we're hopeful about? Yeah, business models for machine learning are important anyway. I want to be clear that open source plays a huge role here. Okay, so why is open source in the form of TensorFlow or Keras or any one of these frameworks for machine learning become so important? Firstly, the big cloud guys make money when you run machine learning stacks 
in their cloud because you're consuming a ton of CPU or GPU resource. By the way, if it's Google and it's a TPU at the edge, you're buying their hardware, so you're making money there too. Second, the research community now distributes code for frameworks, and so their ability to innovate and move fast forward is really based on their ability to publish code in open source. So I fully expect that the very best of machine learning tools will always be open source. And that tells you, by the way, to be hugely suspicious of anybody who says my AI is than anybody else's. Okay, that's all bunk. So the very best will be in open source. The question then is, okay, what are the business models that will work to deliver AI-fueled insights to the edge? And really, thus far, they have been consultants or integrators, uh, I think C3.ai started out this way, effectively taking the best known techniques for delivery of insights and AI and streaming and everything else to a business-focused operation to give them an ability to move faster or improve their operations. And then in the product world, only in vertically focused deployments where an entire Deployment is based on a single vendor's product. Would that work? If that's not the case, then if I have edge gateways from a bunch of different vendors or traffic lights from a bunch of different vendors, can I derive the same insight? That's a big question on the part of customers, and they literally, they're at sea at the moment. They don't know how to move forward because they want the benefits. They just don't know how to get there. Yes, this is a hard transition. Okay. Well, Simon, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about all of this with me, and hopefully this will help other people make their own decisions about how to charge, how to, how to build even their own machine learning at the edge. It's been great fun. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.